the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Did Jesus draw lines or draw circles? And then, how does a culture of evangelism actually take root in your church? You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Friday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Aubrey, the the beauty of technology. You and I are not even near each other at the moment. I am in beautiful Chicagoland. You are out on the East Coast, correct? In, in beautiful New England while it's fall outside. So right. I am That's like right. right where I'm supposed to be at the moment. So I was listening to the radio, a radio show the other day, and they did a survey in which um, it was determined what is the um, the funniest accent around the world. What oh. is the oh. the the sexiest? Right, France, the French accent, mm. this kind mm. of stuff. There was this actual survey uh, where you are, kind of the Boston, New England one. What did they say? It, it got two of them. Uh, one of them was the smartest. Okay, okay. But the second one, you should use this with your people tonight. Oh, uh, most it. annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually going to not jot that down. I think that would be pretty funny to say so that. This survey, it found that <laughs> the, the number one most annoying accent was the Boston, New England well, oh, accent. Should I, should I tell them that? <laughs> yes, you should. See how they always say you got to relate to your crowd and go, yeah, you can, yeah. You can just tell I'll them insult that. them right off the bat. There we go. That's the way to do it. You can either insult yourself or insult your audience. There's your choice. Oh, man. Uh, we're uh, glad that you're with us. Aubrey has as we said, is off speaking out in New England. I'm excited for this weekend. Going to go see my daughter. Uh, my son has a football game tonight, and then him and I are driving up for Parents Weekend, and we'll get to Holland, Michigan at the ripe hour of like one in the morning. Or something. Hey! So, hey. Uh, it will be good times. So always fun to go spend some time as a family together. So we hope you've got a great weekend planned. It feels like uh, you know, it's it's pumpkin patch time of year. It's apple orchard time of year. It's something like that. So uh, I hope that you are looking forward to it. All right, yeah, Aubrey. That's right. The Andy Stanley story keeps having legs. Oh, my. It just keeps moving. And I found, I think with each, you know, think P. If I'm Andy Stanley, here's what I'm thinking right now. You know what I'm thinking? Uh, this is going to sound really arrogant. Man, I'm a really big deal. People really care about what I say. I think if I'm Andy Stanley, I'm thinking, guys, mind your own business. I have a church to lead. Like, leave me, like, leave me alone, guys. Do your own work. Like, that's what I think he's thinking. That's what I'd be thinking. I'm over here trying to lead my church and ministry in the way God has called me. Everyone else, leave me alone. But maybe not. He is a <laughs> no. best-selling author, so he might like it. Yeah, a little he's bit. pretty public. Yeah. I'm not sure yeah, he's thinking that, but true. I would just be that's like. True. Wow, you guys really care about what I think. Say. <laughs> but the reason they do, obviously, just as a little catch up, Andy Stanley, he hosted the Unconditional Conference. That has kind of lit the Christian world on fire a little bit about how do we care for, uh, you know, uh, teenagers struggling with LGBTQ, uh, 
um, identity questions, but also yeah. the more the bigger thing with that conference was parents. How do you mm. support parents? Um, and then you know people are digging into Andy Stanley's words. Yeah. Is he affirming? What exactly is he? Because as you said, Andy Stanley, there are certain pastors who move the needle, and yeah. um, this is also he's one of them. Rick Warren's one of them, right? That's yep. why he was front and center with the Southern Baptist yep. Convention's debate about women in ministry. Yep. Rick Warren moves the needle. Other, the, and so Andy Stanley does. So uh, over at the Gospel Coalition, uh, let's get the author's name here. Hunter Beaumont wrote uh, a response Hunter to Beaumont. Andy Stanley. That is a Isn't cool that? name. That Good is like name. a soap opera name right there. That <laughs> <Hunter. laughs> was the love interest. It's Hunter <laughs> Beaumont. Hunter Beaumont and his evil twin, <laughs> Tristan Beaumont. <laughs> That's awesome. Wow. Because it works. It works. Because it works. Yeah. Uh, he wrote this. Jesus drew circles and lines, a response to Andy Stanley. So Andy Stanley, um, the article is like, you know, Andy Stanley saying you should come and learn from us. And he's basically talking to other churches. And he, Andy Stanley, uh, one of his biggest lines in general, but also in this debate is we want to draw circles, not lines. Yeah. Yeah. Explain that. Explain what he's saying when yeah. he kind of has a missiology yeah. or uh, whatever yeah. that says, I want to draw circles, not lines. Yeah, there's a theorist named Paul Hybert or Hebert who talks about this concept that we we work as churches in bounded sets or like open sets. I don't think open is the word he used, but the idea is a bounded set is people are in or out at your church, period. They have crossed the right lines. And depending on the church, those lines are different. For some, it might just be faith in Christ, confession of faith. For some, it might be you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't, you know, it depends on your church, but a bounded set is there are clear lines, people are in and out. A centered set, that's the word I'm looking that's for, right. that's is right. the idea that everyone's in the circle, but we're all moving together towards Jesus. Like the cross is at the middle and, and people are coming in that circle from all different places. Some over here with major sin and addiction struggles, some over here been in the church forever and are covering up a lot of, you know, sin with religiosity. Some over here just like, Hey, I don't know if I'm a Christian, but I'm part of this right. thing. Let's see what happens. And, and some over here might be the deconstructors, but the idea is that all of us are within the circle moving towards Jesus together. Mm. Now, I don't know if that's what Andy Stanley had in mind, but that's what I think of when I think that's of good. lines and circles, a centered set versus a bounded set. So Stanley's, um, his imagery, his use of this comes from a lot of places. He uses this a lot, but you might remember a couple of weeks ago, Albert Moeller basically wrote his farewell Andy Stanley uh, right. <laughs> uh, article. <laughs> right. And Andy Stanley, in his response to Albert Moeller, wrote this bottom line that version, which is Moeller's version in his response, that version of Christianity draws lines and Jesus mm. drew circles. Mm. He drew circles so large and included so many people in his circle that it consistently made religious people nervous, religious yeah. leaders nervous. Yeah. And his circle was big enough to include sinners like me. And so you could see why people um, on the one hand would be excited about words like that. Yeah. And on the other hand would be would freak out. easy yeah. about it because the question becomes how big's your circle? Yeah. Uh, because lines, I would say lines and circles in this imagery are both important because yeah. – in some ways, you have to define what keeps you in the circle. 
what is yeah. and Andy Stanley is saying, I want to have a really big circle, which has its own danger. And he wants to say Albert Moeller and others have way too small a circle and they're way too gatekeeping about it, mm-hmm. which also has its dangers. I, yeah. It's an interesting way to frame it. I think every church needs to probably have the conversation. Yeah. Circles, lines, where do we draw lines and where are we trying to embrace as many people as possible? I think the difficult part is where are you drawing the lines? Like if this is a line of belonging, I don't think there should be any lines. And I I think it's actually very dangerous to say there are lines. Now, if we're talking about lines of spiritual influence, of leadership, that's a different conversation. Like you do need to have the conversation about who is allowed to have spiritual influence and authority over other people. Certainly no one is perfect. We're all sinners. I understand there's some you know, complication there, but you want somebody who's living a faithful life in Christ and has long-term maturity in Christ. Right. Right, right. And and there'll be some other lines based on your denomination and church background, what you want there. But if it's a line of belonging, welcoming, sharing the gospel, friendship at the table, I just, I absolutely don't think in Jesus, there can be any lines. That's fair. That's fair. And I think the struggle becomes at what point like take something like membership, right? Like most yeah. churches yeah. have membership. Yeah. There's a line drawn there where you yeah. will say, uh, if you're on this side of the line, you could become a member of this church. If you're on yeah. this side of a line, you cannot be maybe teaching kids on this yeah. side. Like there's an expectation of orthodoxy and belief. But I do yeah. think your thing belonging. Can I come to your church? Right. We want the to draw answer a big should be yes. Yeah. We want to draw a big circle to hey, you're here and to your imagery before. And then we want to move together towards Jesus. Yeah. And maybe yeah. at some point you're able to hop that line. Like yeah. there's, there's a little yeah. bit of both here. But it is interesting how much of this has legs. But I think it does because people are really wrestling with uh, what do we believe about this? Totally. Do, do we believe circles and lines? All right. Coming up next on this Friday over at Nine Marks, they talked about a culture of evangelism and how it takes root in your church. I'm going to ask our master of evangelism, <laughs> Aubrey, uh, about this. We're going to do that next year on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Uh, we joke often on this on this show, but it's true. You did the work to get a master's a degree in evangelism. And I did so, uh, why evangelism? Is it a passion point? Is it uh, <laughs> I love this to, something no, you want to grow in? No, I love this question. No, I I it's evangelism and church leadership, and the oh, church, right. the church leadership piece was really interesting to me. Uh, more than anything, it was the program through Propel Women with all like with women in leadership in mind. So it worked. Did that make sense? Like it was like, I can get the education I want. Yes. uh, Because this works with my schedule and I can do it with other women who are also like leaders in their churches. And that was really, really appealing to me because I wanted the community and I wanted the, the funny thing is in the first class, they were like, how many of you see yourself as evangelists? And like, nobody raised their hand. And then they asked the question, will this, will this, will this? And we were all like, we are, evangelists (laughs) well that's an interesting point because i do think most people would answer the same way you did am i an evangelist no why right right. i don't go preach on street corners i don't when i'm on the plane i'm not that person who's like oh i have a captive audience i'm gonna share jesus right uh that's a let's unpack that because i think that is one of the greatest hindrances to living on mission and to being act- an actual doing the work in evangelist. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, like 
the lie is that you you are you're on the street corner you're doing like beachfront evangelism where you have no relationship with anybody and as one who is a master of evangelism i will just say loud and clear like that is not best practice now mm-hmm. there are times i'm not gonna lie when the holy spirit calls somebody to walk up to someone and say hey I feel like you're For struggling. Sure. Do you know Jesus? Like that happens. There are miraculous conversions that happen. And so if the Holy Spirit is prompting you to have that conversation, look, you do it. And as Brian and I sometimes say, like somebody's bad evangelism is better than our no evangelism. <laughs> like you don't know what God will do. But best practice in evangelism is through relationship. It's through listening. It's through loving people. And so anybody who is out there listening to their friends, hearing their spiritual longings, sharing in with emotional intelligence and gentleness, as first Peter talks about compassion, about how Jesus has met them in their own, uh, lostness, their own struggles. That's an evangelist. You know what I mean? And so I, it doesn't have to be this outside of relationship, outside of emotional intelligence, uh, standing on a street corner conversation. It's really within relationship with the people you know, and you genuinely love. And so it can be a lot more natural. And it can be like the way God has created you to do it. Like I tend to share about faith on social media through like, where is God in our grief and suffering? How does God comfort us? That's my way of being an evangelist. I'm not going on my street corner with a megaphone shouting, you know? And, and yet I believe God is, is working through all of our faithfulness. Anyway, but but an evangelism is like, you do use your mouth to tell people about Jesus. We can't skip that piece of it. Yeah, there is like living it out in your life, but that also becomes lazy. Yeah, yeah. You have to do gospel declaration. Yeah. What's the old saying? Like, I, you know, share the gospel and at at times use words. The words are important. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to be an evangelist, declaration is biblically part of the, you know, part of the, we're good news people. It's like me being like, I never have to tell Carrie that I love her. Yeah. Of course. You know, I'm next to her. I did this. Of course. I did the whole marriage covenant thing. You know, we're in. Right. Uh, Every now and then, you know what she needs to hear from me? I love you. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad to be married to you. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So the question they wrestle with over at Nine Marks in an article they wrote is, how do we make a culture of evangelism within our churches? Mm. So not even just in, so obviously individuals, but you know, how do we get a movement, if you will, within the church mm. of evangelism? And they've got mm. some very simple answers. It's not a simple topic, but it's also not brain surgery. Yeah. What do you, how would you answer that? Like when you think about your own church and mm-hmm. like, you know what? I, I want to see people in their giftedness, mm-hmm. sharing Jesus with their neighbors, with their coworkers. Yeah. Uh, how does a culture of evangelism within your church, do you think, begin to foster? Two things come to mind for me. I think it's actually Mark Job who is at the Lyft conference yesterday. Yesterday, he did great. Uh, yeah, he talks about how what we celebrate, we replicate in churches. Mm. And I don't know if he's the first person to say that. He's just the first person I've heard say that. And I think that's a big one, like meaning you share the stories of people who are evangelizing and people who are coming to Christ in your church, right? Mm. People who are doing this well. And that could be through video. That could be through putting them a, a, up on a Sunday morning. That could just be like, hey, this you highlight them somehow. I think that's a piece of it. You celebrate you know, new conversions, that kind of thing. 
Then I think the other thing is this, and this feels deeply important to me. The church is a community. The church is a family. The church is a collective. But what we've done with evangelism, if we sort of, I think, taken it away from doing it in a body and with other people, Mm. and we've made evangelism like, I by myself have to share Jesus with the person on the airplane that I've never met or had a conversation. No, as a community, like, can you, this is why I love our communities at Renewal Church. Like, can you uh, together support a local soccer team? Can you together go visit a coffee shop every single day, get to know the baristas, bless them, love them, bring them gifts, bring them presents, eventually invite them to church, tell them about Jesus. Like there are ways that we do this collectively that one, it's so much more powerful Two, it's so much less intimidating. And three, you've got your introverts, you've got your extroverts. So like, let's say, here's an example, okay? Let's say you get a group of people and invite a bunch of neighbors over for a big block party. And everybody knows, man, I've been praying for so-and-so's uncle to come to Christ. That might be the situation where the extroverts in the room are like, hey, Uncle Joe, let's play basketball. Blah, blah, blah. Mm. Or Uncle Joe is an introvert. And so Uncle Joe needs to sit in the corner with the other introverts who are going to engage in meaningful conversation. That can lead to spiritual growth. Like there's just ways that collectively, if we do this again with love, people aren't projects, but also like let's be intentional about evangelizing and not be afraid of that. Um it it takes some of that pressure off that I think yeah. keeps people from sharing about their faith. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I, I love their first one. Well, this is going to be also really challenging for you pastors out there. Those of us going, okay, how? Oh, let me write note number one. How do I oh. promote a culture of evangelism? You want to know what number one is? Evangelize. Yeah. Jesus. We can't reproduce mm. what we ourselves aren't doing. This Man. goes. This is every sermon you preach. This is everything. Like That's if you're good. not living it out, not perfectly. Yeah. But if I'm preaching on generosity, but I'm yeah. not generous. If I'm preaching right. on evangelism, we want a culture of evangelism. Hey, but who did you last share Jesus with, with? You, yeah. This I don't is- know. I. I did in my sermon today, it's not a surprise that some of the most evangelistic minded churches that I know have the most evangelistic minded pastors. pastors. Yeah, totally. Totally. And so uh, that's a, a hard one, but it says, and then as you evangelize, take others to do it with you. Mm-hmm. Like you just said, do mm-hmm. it in community. Yeah. Uh, make it a regular point of your sermon application. Oh, that's good. And make evangelistic appeals to unbelievers in your sermon. Uh, I remember somebody telling me, you might not have any non-believers in your church, but preach as if they are there. Yeah, that's good. And then they will come. And then he says, raise the profile of members who are doing this well. Mm. Talk about them. Have them share their stories. Yeah. Uh, And then there's a couple more. And I also appreciate this one. He said, uh, celebrate the efforts, yeah. the small wins. Not, don't good. just get up the people who are like, I I shared Jesus and there was a revival in my building, <laughs> in my office. And people will be like, I can get the people up there who are like, guys, I tried it and it was it didn't go well. It was terrible. It was right. hard, but, right. but God met me there and mm. I was able to have this conversation. Like, yeah. celebrate. That's kind of the point of the article. Like, do you want to have an evangelistic That's movement good. in your church culture? Like celebrate little minor wins. I love wins. that. That's little great. minor wins. So I thought that was helpful. Uh, the hardest part is, uh, like you said, people will replicate what you celebrate both about your life and about them. Oh, man. Uh, and so do that. All right. Coming up next, there was something called the Biblical Worldview Conference recently. 
that looked at a bunch of things, including Lee Strobel talking about evidence for the resurrection. I want to talk about what is the evidence for the resurrection, mm. but more importantly, does it even matter if the resurrection actually happened? We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. I was reading about an apologetics conference, a biblical worldview conference that took uh, place the other day at Prestonwood Bible Academy, I think it's called, Lee Strobel, William Lane Craig, Jack Graham, all of them. Uh, and it looked at a bunch of different things. But Aubrey, what I thought was interesting is they discussed the evidence for Jesus's resurrection. This is a big Lee Strobel one, right? He wrote yeah. a book called The Case for the Resurrection, yep. Case for Christ, Case for all of this stuff. Um, but the historicity of the resurrection, the evidence of the resurrection, and we know these, but I'll go through them in a second. But Ooh, okay. before we do, uh, why does the historicity of the resurrection matter? Uh, yeah. As opposed to, oh, it's an allegory, it's uh, whatever. Uh, why does the actual event of the resurrection of Jesus matter? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, I think it's a really important question because there are people who land on it being like an allegory, a myth, a right. really good story, that kind of thing. I mean, I, you know, is it, is it, I think it's Paul who talks about like, if the resurrection isn't true, then like, laugh at us yeah Yeah. like um because for i would say for the christian faith but not just for the christian faith for the whole world like everything is pinned on the resurrection if jesus wasn't able to conquer our greatest enemy which is death then there's no hope for new life there's Mm -hmm. no hope for new creation there's no hope for jesus's return because he's just dead in the ground right Mm -hmm. and then there's no hope for the rest of us to be the first fruits of uh, like follow suit in Jesus's resurrection. And, and, and I would say also like the resurrection, Jesus is being able to conquer death forever and being the final atonement for sin um, allows us to have a relationship with God. And so we have hope that we can be with Jesus one day. We have hope that our prayers are answered. We have hope that we're not truly alone. We have hope that God is making all things new. We have, you know, all the broken and devastating things we experience, the suffering in this world, like we're talking about with Israel this week. We have hope because of the resurrection that like, that's not the end of the story. And so it matters that it really happened. I mean, I I think too, just because like death, death is our final enemy. And so if there's no victory over death, like if that was just metaphorical, then that means death actually wasn't conquered. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? Mm -hmm. And so we actually need like Jesus in his flesh and blood for our flesh and blood to be saved. There's this old, there's this old uh, ancient theologian who said, what is not assumed cannot be saved. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that if Jesus didn't actually assume sin and death in his body, then there is no hope for us to be saved if it's just metaphorical. Mm, That's good. So let's give some background, some Lee Strobel evidences, right? And I wonder what, if you think these are compelling. So like a good pastor, writer, theologian, the four are all beginning with the letter E. Look at that. Look at that. So these are, uh, these are Lee Strobel giving uh, the audience four key terms to summarize the evidence of the resurrection. 
One, execution. Jesus was truly dead after the cross, a fact demonstrated even in texts from Josephus and other historians. Early, within months of the crucifixion of Christ, we have early accounts of the subsequent resurrection of Jesus, most notably the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, which was circulated during the lifetime of Jesus's contemporaries, who could have easily contradicted these reports. Empty. The tomb in which Jesus was buried is empty. In fact, a fact, Strobel said, which even his enemies admitted, but admitted, but pinned rather on the disciples' theft of the body. Uh, the last E is eyewitnesses. Jesus said, <laughs> uh, Strobel said, appeared alive in a dozen different instances to more than 500 people. Uh, he he kind of touched on the, what I find to be most compelling, but you know what I find most compelling evidence to the resurrection? What's kind of the eyewitness one. Mm. All the disciples died for this. Yeah, I, I think that's a massive, I think that's a massive one because it is unlikely, you know, maybe one or two, let's say it was all fake. Okay. Yep. Maybe one or two die because they're brainwashed. Right. Yep. But not all 12, like not other followers of Jesus mm-hmm. and like violent, like beheadings. Nobody's just awesome. like, nobody's like falling asleep and like gently going to sleep. Like it is all like they're, you know, and. And for Paul to be able to say, like, uh, for, you know, uh, for death is gain, right? Like, he's literally facing death. You know what I'm saying? Like, this isn't like a joke to them. I, you know what I actually think is the most compelling? I think it's the secular historians. I think it's those Mm. outside of the faith because I think an arguer could come in and say, well, yeah, the Bible's going to back up the Bible story, period. You know, like a good writer backs up their work. But to see somebody else who people outside of the Christian faith and outside of the little circle of Jesus followers say, well, actually, there's truth to this. That to Mm. me is very compelling. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Uh, because the eyewitness one and the martyrdom, the old believe the, uh, you know, believe those of the blood of the martyrs. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what's interesting is it's not like Peter and James and John, oh, no, all of them heard this from other people, believed right. it, and then died. No, they right. claimed, I saw him. I yeah, saw him. I saw him. And they held that to the point of church history tells us Peter was crucified upside yeah. down. James yeah. was beheaded or yeah. thrown off the temple. Yeah. Uh, John was boiled in all of these. And yet they were the ones who could have easily said, Oh, just kidding. Right. All right. You caught us. Right. You caught us. Right. Uh, I I think it's huge. And why this is important ultimately is because this is the foundation of Christianity. Paul himself, as you said, Mm -hmm. said, and I always bring this up at Easter, he said, If not, if the resurrection isn't true, we are to be pitied. We're to be looked down upon. Yeah. We are to be mocked and made fun of. Uh, But if the resurrection is true, uh, then everything has changed and all of this is true. So I also, uh, one, one more like apologetic for the mm-hmm. resurrection. I heard this from a very progressive Christian who like in today's day, you'd be like, are like, they're liberal. You know what I mean? Like they're like, this was early progressive. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, and this person argued for like, look at creation. Like there is evidence of resurrection in creation. There are new seasons. There is a sunrise. 
flowers die and then get reborn and they don't get reborn. They don't get reincarnated into a different type of plant. Like Mm. the seed of whatever it is becomes the plant it's supposed to. And this person who was so progressive was like, I can't walk away from the resurrection because I see evidence of it everywhere I go on this planet. And and I think that's another, you know, it's, it's not historical. That's not historicity, but it certainly is something about Psalm eight, right? Like the world speaks of the glory of God and the image of God even the resurrection. No, that's really good. Yeah. yeah. From somebody outside of the faith or yeah. no, not outside the faith. Uh, kind on of a, a more kind of extreme progressive part there of the you faith. Go. Yeah. There you go. All right, Aubrey, here's what I appreciate about our show. There's a What's lot that? of things I appreciate about our show. Yes. Let me tell you what I appreciate about it in this moment. Ooh, okay. We just talked to, we just talked evangelism. We just talked resurrection, <laughs> the evidences of the resurrection, why it matters that if the resurrection didn't happen, we are to be pitied, right? We, yeah. we got into theology yeah. and this and that. Then we went to commercial and we come back. We're going to talk, <laughs> talk pop culture, crumbling marriages. This How's that great, This is a great show. This is a great show. I love it. And I'm very curious about, uh, about what's happening with this couple. Cause I feel like we haven't talked about them in a while. Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith. All right. Mm. A Hollywood power couple, if you will. Yep. But it's come out recently that they are super weird. Yeah. Super weird. And uh, remember, it was over an insult or a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith that Will Smith famously <laughs> went and yep. slapped Chris Rock at yep. the Oscars. Good times. So Jada Pinkett Smith. In an upcoming tonight uh, NBC News primetime special with Hoda oh. Kotb. We love Hoda. Yeah, she's uh, your girl. She confirms that there's more to her marriage than she's previously shared. According to Pinkett Smith, she and Will Smith have been separated and have lived, quote, completely separate lives since 2016. What? Almost 20 years after they married in 1997. What? Uh, in the preview clip, Code P, uh, Cot P, uh, Hoda Kotpi asked Pinkett Smith for details about their marriage revelation which she says surprised her the most out of the book's many mysterious or many surprising things. While the two are still legally married, Pinkett Smith explains to copy she and Smith are no longer romantically together. It was not a divorce on paper, Hoda clarified. Right, Pinkett Smith responds. But it was a divorce, she continues. Yes, a divorce, Pinkett Smith emphasizes. What? So does this surprise you? Well, okay. No, it doesn't surprise me because we always said like you got an open marriage, which is what they supposedly touted. It's going to end in divorce, period. But here's what surprises me. Instead of saying we're separated, so we're dating other people, they acted like they had this whole philosophy of marriage that was that they had an open marriage. And that's twisted. Just say you're separating, you're getting divorced, you're dating other people instead of making it like, oh, we're open. We let other people in our marriage. We're very progressive and we're very like, it's almost like they thought they were better than other people who had faithful marriages the whole time. They're not even married. Like, this is weird. This is bizarre. bizarre. So I want to talk about marriage, but here's the most bizarre thing she said, in my opinion. Uh, When Hoda Kotb asked her why she didn't go through with a legal divorce. I don't know. Like, I think some people will hear this and go, good for you, but no, not good for you. You've been living divorce since 2016. She wrote, she said this, I made a promise that there will never be a reason for us to get a divorce. We will work through whatever. I just haven't been able to break that promise. You just said you're living completely separate lives. I mean, that's not a marriage. No. This no. is so confusing to me. So like the slap 
they weren't married or they're separated. That's right. Her having a, re- a relationship with, I can't remember the guy's name, the, the quote entanglement, they were separated. Like, uh, is she just like distancing herself from some of his like PR problems? Like She's what? This weird. is very strange. I wonder yep. what's, why, why secretly? I think that's the question. Why that's secret? Right. Why be that's secretive right. about it? So she did say one thing that I think um, uh, is probably uh, something that a lot of marriages struggle with. So I do want to kind of make that leap because they're okay. co- they're clearly strange. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. She said this while the marriage fractured. Why? Oh, sorry, sorry. Why it fractured? That that's a lot of things. By the time we got to 2016, we were just exhausted with trying. I think we were both kind of just still stuck in our fantasy of what we thought the other person should be. Mm. I think that that Mm. is where a lot of struggling marriages are at. Mm. Two words there. Um, I hear exhausted. Like we're just tired of trying. Yeah. Yeah. And disillusioned. I had this picture of what marriage and my spouse would be. And they're just not not that. that. Yeah. And she said she wasn't like, oh, there's been stories of both of them cheating on each other, but she yeah. didn't say it's because they cheated. She said, we're just tired of trying. Aubrey, I really think that's what ends a lot of marriages. You hear marriages after yeah. 25 years falling apart. You and I talked a month or so ago, and Carrie and I were just talking about the number of people we know getting divorced. So many people right now. And so many of them, it's not over some cataclysmic thing. I think totally. they can say exactly what Jada Pinkett just totally. said. Totally. Just tired of trying. I got tired, tired of, of trying. trying. Or I was trying and they weren't trying. Like that's that's when we've heard quite a bit lately. And I know some of it is like we're just at that age now where I think people are giving themselves permission to get divorced because their kids are out of the house. Some of it is like you hit midlife and you kind of go, is this the life that I want anymore? No, I want to envision something else for the next half of my life. Some of it I think is just like changes that we go through in our bodies and in our minds. And you're kind of like, I don't want to put up with this anymore. Like, I I think you're right. Like there are so many divorces Kevin and I are seeing where it's just, there's not a cataclysmic event. It is just we're done. We're, we're just, it became meh. Like that's what Kevin and I keep right. saying, man, you got divorced over the most vanilla reasons of all time. Yep. And um, I think that's worth acknowledging that like that is a temptation in every marriage. And that even doesn't mean it's, you can be tired. Like that can yes. be really, really, really real. I think we're like the, the enemy gets in there to try to convince you that like, it's not worth doing the work, right? Or that if I could start fresh with somebody else, it'll be better and this won't happen. I married the wrong person. Like, I think all of those things are such cultural lies about what love is and what marriage is that you have to kind of just, you have to willfully go, no, the person I'm married to is the right person because they're my spouse. And I'm going to do the work to make the, you know, I've said this before, like, the grass is greener where you water it. So mm-hmm. I'm going to do the mm-hmm. work to water the grass here. And of course, there are times when like it doesn't work and you end up getting a divorce. I understand that. There's grace for that. God's love is there. But just not to give into the lies of like, I'm bored. This is too hard. I don't want to do the work anymore. Like, like get to therapy, invest in your marriage. I'm telling you, like it is worth it to stay faithful. It's worth it to 
to this generation, to the next generation, to your grandkids, your great grandkids, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that legacy really, really matters. And again, I think like the danger is you're not going to go, you might fall in love momentarily with somebody else. Like the chemicals are going to be certainly moving. The hormones are going to be raging for a couple of years, but then you're going to find yourself in the exact same situation where, oh, the feelings died down, the flame died down. What happened? I thought this was the right person. Well, no, this is just the reality of maturing in a relationship. That's well put. So the person out there who is exhausted, like that's the word, what's just one encouragement to them? I think for me, I would encourage them, um, do something that reminds you why you guys got married in the first place. Like get out of the routine Mm. that's causing you to be exhausted. Mm. Maybe it's a, it's marriage counseling. Maybe it's a marriage retreat. Maybe it's just getting away for a weekend where it's just the two of you, whatever else we get, do something that shakes it up a little bit uh, and gets you out of that. What would you say to the person right now? Who's exhausted? I would say one, like it, Again, it's it's totally understandable that you're exhausted. And especially if you're the one who feels like you're doing the work, you're fighting for the marriage, they aren't. I think that can even be a lie, right? But I think Brian's right. Like, um, get yourself some therapy. Like if your spouse won't go, like do the work yourself to see what needs to be done. Work on you. And then I would, yeah, I would, I, I don't, I think you need, I think you have to be in therapy with your spouse, period. Mm-hmm. Like you have to find a good marriage counselor who's going to help you do the work of good communication, good repair, good investment in your marriage, or else you're not going to make it. And it's worth doing. It's worth giving it a try. And I mean, like a good year, like don't give up after mm-hmm. three months, like put a year or longer into it and, and just see what God might do. And then like, it's okay to tell somebody we're really struggling here. We need some help and, um, you know, invite some other people into the process yeah, as well. Yeah. But I, I know there's nothing lonelier than a, than a painful marriage because you're supposed to have a partner and you feel like you don't. So there is like compassion, but I would say don't throw in the towel until you've done the work. Uh, it's a good, it's a good word. Like uh, we talk about a lot on the show because we want marriages to succeed and they can be difficult. Yeah. Uh, you can be exhausted, but keep fighting, keep fighting. Remember why you got in it in the first mm-hmm. place. And uh, yeah, we hope that you're able to get out of that, that you yeah. get out of that. Um, that Coming up r- next, we get to do one of our favorite things each and every week. Our top five list. This one is Friday the 13th specific. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It is Friday the 13th. It is Friday. And so we're going to do one of our favorite things, a top five list. This one is going to be in honor of Friday the 13th and in honor of our conversation with Joss Larson earlier this week about should Christians watch horror movies. We are doing our top five horror movies. Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five things with Brian and Aubrey. And to be very clear, Brian and I actually don't like horror movies. I do not. We are both terrified of them. We both really won't watch them, but we did our best to create our top five horror movie list. And I think we've... We've uh, stretched the genre maybe a little bit in some of the categories, but I went to like Rotten Tomatoes and did their best. Okay, um, nice. You know, like so whatever they define. But like you said, some of these are a stretch. But yes, okay, um, that's fair. 
and I would say ours probably tend just a little bit older to when we're kids, like when it was cool yeah. to watch. Because right now, I do not watch horror movies. No, they're all <laughs> so they're all so yeah. terrifying right now. Well, do you want to kick us off with your number five? Yeah, number five. I'm going to go old school. I'm going to go uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Because <gasps> oh I feel yeah, like yeah. All of them, like all of them, they were so cheesy. They were yeah. so bad. Yeah, they were so all of that. But I feel like, um, like that was right in my junior high high school time of like well you have to watch horror movies so it terrified me and then no, ironically ter- me too i wasn't allowed to watch them but i snuck them and they're scary back then. ironically after marriage uh, our first home that carrie and i lived was on a road <gasps> just off of elm street which was the elm street because west craven was at wheaton so that's so scary facts. So scary that you lived on the Elm Street. I lived off. It was a little road off of oh, Elm Street. Okay. But yes. okay. Here's, so- a, here's a little known fact about Wheaton, by the way. Yep. The Elm Street that it is named after. Do you uh-huh. know who grew up on that Elm Street? Besides Wes Craven? The Belushis. No, Wes Craven did not grow up on there. He just named it after it. Oh, but the oh, Belushis. Oh. John and Jim Belushi. Oh, how fun. There you go. Wheaton Look at all history. These people coming out of Wheaton. I love it. I love it. That's great. What's your number five? Uh, my number five, I'm going not that old school. But I would say older than the new movies. And I think this counts as a horror movie. I'm going to go with The Sixth Sense. Ooh, that's a horror movie. I yes. like that movie. That one That one was a good... That's a scary one, but it was a good watch. Yeah, little... Uh, See dead people. Little yeah, I was going to say, Osmond. a little spoiler alert. They're dead. He's yeah, dead. Bruce dead. Willis is dead. Bruce Willis is dead. Yeah. If number you haven't four, seen it, sorry. Spoiler alert. All right. Number, number four, four. This one was terrifying for a very specific reason and causes to this day people to be scared to go in the ocean. I'm going Jaws. Oh, good one. That's a Jaws. that's a throwback right there. Yeah. Have Jaws. you ever thought about I'm not sure there's a movie that has changed the perception of anything more than Jaws has changed the perception of <laughs> swimming in the really ocean. That's a really good point actually. Like it has ruined swimming in the ocean for me. I'm terrified of sharks the whole time I'm in the water. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Have you watched Jaws again recently? Like there's no, no way that thing is scary anymore. It doesn't hold up. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. No, yeah, no, no, no. But it, I saw, it was on TV recently, and I had it on for just a little bit, but not for long. Okay. All right. Uh, my number four, I think this this movie franchise came into popularity when we were in high school. It was still happening while we were in college, maybe even young adult, because there have been a lot of them. But I I actually enjoyed and was terrified by the first one, Scream. Yeah, it's going to show up four. on my list. Yeah. It's going to show up on my list. It's, you know, it's got a good, it's funny. It's got a good, memorable cast list of characters. There's some great scenes. They kill off Drew Barrymore. But it Barrymore was scary. Yeah. They kill off Drew Barrymore immediately. That's and right. Tell me, anyone, we were in high school when it came out and it was terrifying. And then anyone uh, who ever babysat, you were terrified anytime the phone rang because that Uh-oh. was that scene. Like, that was so scary. And she's that like, was what? so and the, scary. Yeah. Cool. yeah. Yeah. Number three, and this is a much more recent one, and I only bring it up because I watched it with my daughters. They were watching it maybe last winter or over the summer, and I just sat down and was watching it with them, and it was terrifying. Uh, John Krasinski, otherwise known as Jim Halpert, oh, in The yeah. Quiet Place. Okay. The Quiet Place. I forgot to add that to my list. That is terrifying. It is terrifying. so scary. Oh, man. Oh, man. It was, I was like, what is this? Like, it's a quiet place. I'm like, what's the whole point? And it's like, these things are trying to get you and they're terrifying. And if you make any noise and then the little kid, you're just like, this is the worst movie ever. It was terrifying, but it was good. But it's good. Yeah, it's good. All right. Uh, my number three, I'm, I'm stretching the genre a little bit, but this movie was scary to me when I was a little kid and I wasn't allowed to watch it, but I, 
made the mistake of watching it and I got scared. And that would be Gremlins. Oh, yes. I did not think about that for this genre. Yeah. But uh, Gremlins as kids. I bet you now it would not be. No, now it would probably be really funny. But remember, there was the cute little. What's his name? I can't even remember his name. I think I, I had the stuffed the animal. Yet. He was kind of a pop cultural icon, but then they got wed after midnight or something yes, like that. He got scared by them, but then got the doll. Well, the cute one, because, right, the cute one was cute and he stayed cute the whole time, but it was the scary gremlins that, you know, sure, were but really you bad. weren't scared that that would turn into a scary gremlin. No, 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 because he stayed cute the whole movie. He was, a, he was afraid of the scary yeah, gremlins, yeah. you know. I would have reminded, see, if I were a kid, I would have been scared that the scary gremlins were going to come take my cute one in oh, my room. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. For they number were. two, we just had a long discussion about it. I, I, it hit us just at the right time. Like right now, if this came out, I wouldn't go watch it. But it hit us at the right time, and that was Scream. Yeah. And here's what's terrifying about Scream. Scream was terrifying when it first came out for me because it was so realistic. It was like just high school kids and crazy masks. And you're like, this could really That could happen. happen. You're right. It wasn't supernatural. It was no, just it like wasn't a like psychopath. Freddy Krueger. You're like, in Nightmare. Yeah. like, well, that's not going to happen. Like, right, right. The Scream one, you're like. Yeah, that's true. That's kind that of happening. changed changed the genre a little bit, like more yep. about just like yep. a scary person. All right, number okay. two for you. All right, my number two, <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, something we talked about with Josh Larson. That's the movie Get Out. I actually like that movie because it's kind of a social commentary uh, on racism. It's really, it's pretty terrifying. And I've I've subsequently watched many of the, um, many of the like Jordan Peele movies and they're all pretty terrifying. I'm not going to lie. They are, are. but I like, but they're entertaining for sure. Number one for me. And this is some people. No, you don't have any, uh, no honorable mentions. I do not do you. Okay. Uh, I have I have two, but okay. I'm definitely stretching the genre. Should I share them before you go with sure, your number one? Sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to go with the movie Misery. Remember with Ooh, Kathy terrifying. Bates and she yes, takes yes, the yes, – yes, yes. she like holds that author up like she's a stalker basically. And then I'm really stretching the genre here, but Ghostbusters. I'm throwing it in there as a fun – Ghostbusters is a fun, scary ghost movie. Uh, that is true. That is uh, a comedy, I would suggest. But yes, yeah. it can be scary, especially when we're little. Number oh, one, I okay, went. To- I have one more. I'm so sorry. I have one more. Go ahead. Uh, the Silence of the Lambs. Which is my number one. Oh, come uh, on. Oh, my I number one that I chose was Silence of the Lambs because yeah. he is terrifying. He's terrifying. And he's dark and funny at times yes. and terrifying. And yes. then he's at the end, he's like out and you're like, okay, he's going to come eat me. Like he's yep. going to come eat me. So yep. that was my number one. What is your Good number one. one? My number one is something I also mentioned with Josh Larson, just because it's so classic. I, I don't necessarily want to watch it again, but it is definitely a top five horror movie. And that is The Shining. Oof, no, thank you. I've never seen it, but I do not plan on seeing it. What does all work and no play makes John a Jack? No, here's Johnny. John a dull boy. Yeah, this is scary. It's it's very, very scary. Hey, we'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.